So our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 1, verses 46 through 55, Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has, self, he has helped his servant, Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this blessed day, and thank you for these words. Um, we should read them every day to remember the gift that you have given us um, of your son, Jesus, um, I pray that we remember to have blessed thoughts of one another and that we bless each other every day with encouragement and with your, um, with your love. And I thank you for this season where we are able to gather together and remember and glorify the gift you gave us in your son Jesus in his precious name amen the bigness of something that it just kind of uh, left you awestruck let you like kind of like made you think about how you were connected to this maybe this bigger picture this bigger story that that God was was writing does anybody have a moment like that um, we were talking about um, this same topic maybe, I think it was several months ago, Jay, wasn't it, in book club, where one of the writers was talking about how people have these whoosh moments where they're just overwhelmed by everything that they're experiencing and they're connected, they feel connected to the bigger picture of what the universe is all about. And, and a lot of people were sharing during that book club that that happens for them oftentimes in nature. So when they're looking out over the ocean or, or when they're in the forest and they look up and, and they're away from the light pollution of the city and they see all the stars in the sky or, or when they're on a mountain or the Grand Canyon, how big and vast that is. And, and it's just an overwhelming feeling. But others shared that, no, that, that happens to them when they, they look at a, a work of art, right? And then that, that feeling can sometimes wash over them when they have that feeling. But for me, oftentimes, this comes upon me when I'm listening to music. Now, I, I like, those of you who know me know that I like all different kinds of music. But lately, I have been listening to a lot of post-rock. So bands like Sigaras, Explosions in the Sky, This Will Destroy You, some of you are still kind of like, that doesn't help me at all, Andrew. Um, and that, with those titles, you might think, oh, maybe this is like really heavy metal or something like that. But that's not, that's not what post-rock is about. It's, it's like this big sort of expansive instrumental music that 
it's, it's less about riffs and choruses and normal song structures. Uh, uh, it's much more about creating this like soundscape, really textured, dynamic, sometimes really dense. And then there's these moments that are pretty quiet, you know, and then they transition to these, these big swells of sound. And then they just get bigger and bigger. And sometimes you're like, man, it can't get any bigger than this. And it gets bigger and bigger. And in my opinion, the best way to experience post-rock is live. When, when it's like it's just surrounding you. And I had an experience like that in 2009 when I saw This Will Destroy You in concert in Dallas. And, and the music was, it was so big and it got so loud and intense that you, you just started to feel like swallowed up by it. And it made you feel small in one way, but then sort of like you were connected to something big, to something significant, to something beautiful. And so I found myself in this concert. I was probably the only person doing this at this particular concert, but I found myself worshiping God because the bigness and the beauty of the music was reminding me of the bigness and beauty of God. And it left me sort of in awe and in gratitude that God would let me be just even a small part like of his plan. Have you guys ever experienced a moment like that? I bring this up because I think we are looking at a moment like that uh, in the life of this young, poor, teenage girl from Nazareth. This really small podunk town in the middle of Galilee. You can't really call it a town because most scholars think it's like maybe 200 people, 400 people. You think everybody knows each other in that town? Yeah, they all know each other, right? And she finds herself pregnant. Is she married yet? So out of wedlock, pregnant, right? And of course, I'm talking about Mary. Now, the angel had told Mary, hey, check it out. You, the, the baby in your womb was conceived in you by the Holy Spirit, right? And you're carrying the Messiah, okay? Now, but how many people in her town are going to believe that? <laughs> like, like 0% chance, right? And so she's carrying this news she doesn't know what to do with it. She's got all these things that are going against her, and, and there she is. Now, if you keep reading the story, she doesn't stay in Nazareth, does she? she go, not for her whole pregnancy. She goes and she visits her relative Elizabeth, who the angel told her was, was also pregnant. And there, you know, there's no email. There's no texting ahead. There's nothing, right? So she, Elizabeth probably doesn't even know that she's coming. But when Elizabeth sees Mary, she's pregnant too. She's got John the Baptist in her belly. She exclaims this in Luke chapter 1, verse 42. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so in that moment, you, can, you kind of get the sense that Mary is beginning to feel the significance of all that is happening to her. 
right? And it's like all crashing down at her at once like this giant ocean wave. And she's coming face to face with the bigness and the beauty of God's plan and her role in it. And then what comes out of her is this poem of praise that begins this way. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, the way that biblical poetry works is that it kind of comes at you in two lines, two lines at a time, right? Normally, there's some exceptions. But the second line, the way that they write poetry, clarifies the first line. So they either says the same idea, they repeat the same idea, but in a slightly different way, or they build on that idea, or they, they talk about the idea from the reverse, and we call that poetic parallelism. So that's a little bit different than how we write poetry, right? We usually use rhyme, meter, that kind of thing. But they use biblical parallelism. And we find an example of that just in these first two lines, right? My soul is in parallel with what? My spirit. Lord is in parallel with God, my Savior. And that's kind of intuitive. But then what's interesting in the middle is that magnifies is in parallel with rejoices. And it, and it causes you to ask the question, okay, what, what's the relationship between these two ideas? In the Bible, joy in God, especially when things look bad from the outside. Right, right. Think about Mary's situation. Joy in God when things look bad from the outside magnifies God. Right? It, it makes God, it helps other people see that God is great. So it doesn't magnify God in the way that a microscope magnifies something small to make it bigger than what it really is. It's more like the Hubble telescope out in outer space to help you understand the actual magnitude of something. Right? When you have joy in God, in the midst of what looks bad from the outside, it makes the word, God look great in the eyes of those who are looking in who can't believe what they're seeing. Like, wow, in the midst of those circumstances, you have joy in God. It kind of reminds me of when I went to go visit Carlton in the hospital, and the doctors are telling him all kinds of bad news. I, I was there actually just outside the room. I don't know if I was supposed to be listening or not. But they're, they're, they said, sir, you have a large tumor, right? And they kept repeating that. Not just tumor, large tumor. And when a doctor says large tumor, it is a large tumor. And they were saying, you have stage four cancer, right? And, and Carlton, they were concerned about Carlton, right? They would talk to his friends and his family members about him, and they're like, He's not really giving us the reactions that we are expecting him to give us with regard to this news. Like, do you think he's understanding what we're saying? <laughs> yeah, okay. Or do you think he's sticking his head in the sand? Is it, is it like denial and it's going to like all explode in a week or something like that? And it's like, no, 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 no. No, he understands what you're saying, right? He's not in denial about that, right? He just has a different frame of reference, right? Because God told him that he didn't have to be afraid of death. And he believed God. 
And like, man, joy in God when things look bad from the outside magnify God. And so today I want to talk about how Mary is a happy worshiper. Because you might legitimately ask from the outside looking in, how can you be rejoicing right now? But she's a happy worshiper for two reasons that she kind of explains in her poem. For one, she's a happy worshiper because she realizes that she is very privileged to be a part of God's plan. That's our first point. But then secondly, she is a happy worshiper because she also realizes that this is part of God's end time reversal. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here in in a moment. But let's first think about how she realizes how privileged she is to be part of God's plan. So again, in verse 46, it says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This This poem has two stanzas. This is how she's beginning the first stanza. And in this first stanza, she gives two reasons for why she would praise God as it relates to her privileged position that she's now in. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? The first reason, verse 48. For, or you could translate that, because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, she goes on to explain. So she's talking about looking with favor. So God saw her. This is the first reason. For behold, from now on, right, and this from now on is a special phrase in the Gospel of Luke that kind of marks out when there's going to be a shift in salvation history, right? Because I'm pregnant, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And so Mary rejoices in this moment in God because God sees her differently than how the world sees her, right? The world, if they see her at all, right, and she would probably be largely invisible to many people in that culture, right? They just saw a young, poor teenage girl from this small town with a bad reputation, right? Remember Nathaniel in John chapter 1? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? So that's how the world sees Mary. But God looks at Mary and says, no, 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 no. I use the lowly things of the world to bring about my big and beautiful plan. And I'm, I'm going to send my son into the world. I'm bringing Christmas through this, this girl right here. Now, some of you, you can relate to Mary right? because maybe people in the world don't take you seriously. Heck, your own family doesn't take you seriously, right? And you're, you're kind of looked over. Maybe you feel invisible. But nevertheless, God has called you in Jesus Christ into his family. And he's given you a specific calling for your life. He's going to use your gifts. He gives everybody a spiritual gift. Everybody. Everybody. He gives a spiritual gift to everybody who belongs to Jesus. And he uses them. Now listen to what Paul says regarding our calling in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There beginning in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
that offend anybody? <laughs> uh, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So neither we nor Mary was chosen because there was something that the world valued in us, but because God assigned value to us by his good grace. So Mary can be a happy worshiper because God looked at her differently than the world looked at her. He didn't dismiss her humble estate. Right? Instead, he moved towards her to bless her. So Mary says, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for, this is verse 49, now here's the second reason, because he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So God in his might, in his holiness, in his mercy, he's bringing Christmas through Mary. And Mary identifies in these two verses three attributes of God that make Christmas both necessary and possible. She says God is holy. Holy is his name, she says, meaning everything about God, his entire reputation is completely set apart, different, utterly unique in power and in purity. There is no sin in God. And that makes God magnificent, but it also makes God dangerous. Because guess what? We're impure. So in the same way that the sun like, can provide life, what happens if you get too close to the sun? Incinerated, right? In God and his holiness, you bring your impurity into the presence of that kind of holiness, you can expect incineration. So God's burning holiness right, makes Christmas necessary. But he's not just holy, He's merciful. In verse 50, it says, And his mercy is for those who fear him. So God moves towards those who reverence him. For those who say, no, no, you're big and, and I'm small. You're the king. I, I, I'm a humble servant. Those people who come to God in humility, God moves toward them in spite of their impurity. And he sends them Jesus, quite literally for Mary, right? He sends Jesus into her stomach, right? So holiness necessitates Christmas, but mercy motivates Christmas. But it's God's might that makes Christmas possible. In verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, God gave her Jesus in, in her belly. So you can, you can identify things that, like, yeah, that situation needs help. You can say, yep, 
You can say, I really want to do something about it, right? But if you don't have the power, nothing's going to be done, right? But God is not only holy and merciful, he is mighty. So he's going he's to come and he's going to do something about it. And so God's might makes Christmas possible. And so Mary can be a happy worshiper because she's beginning to realize and come to terms with everything that God is doing through her on behalf of humanity. The salvation of the world is brewing in her stomach. And she's coming to terms with her role in Christmas. And so therefore she can praise God in the way that she's praying praising him in this poem. As Mary continues with her poem, she sort of shifts from praising God for what God is doing for her personally to then talking about, okay, what does that mean for the people of God in the second stanza? She starts to consider that, and that brings us to our second point. Mary can be a happy worshiper even in the situation that she is in because she realizes that this is the beginning of God's end time reversal. So in verse 51, we read, he has shown strength with his arm. So this is an idiom oftentimes used in the Bible to talk about God fighting on behalf of his people to deliver them from the oppression of their enemies. So you'll see the same kind of picture used in the Exodus story. When God is delivering his people out of Egypt, uses the same kind. God shows the strength of his arm. God is spirit, but metaphorically speaking, he's going to show the strength of his arm. And the rest of the second stanza explains how, how, what does that actually look like? He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So think about Mary. How is she referred to herself? God has looked upon her in her what? Humble estate. Right? And now God is exalting her by giving her this privileged position in his plan. What about Jesus? Jesus left the throne room of God. He humbled himself and became a baby. The creator of the world became a baby. And then he humbled himself again and died on a criminal's cross. And what, God, what did God do in response to that? Exalted him. Resurrection. Ascension, because Jesus went farther down. Jesus started higher up than anybody, went farther down than anybody, was raised up higher than everybody. (laughs) And that's the pattern, right? And God is wanting to show us that pattern in Jesus Christ. This is what God does. He goes on to say in verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So how is he going to show his might? Through this end time reversal. When Jesus' kingdom comes, Jesus is going to turn everything, the whole world system, on its head. His kingdom is different. And in the Old Testament, this was anticipated. Like in the end times, he, he promised Israel, like I'm going to send my Christ And he is going to exalt the humble. He's going to humble the proud. He's going to make everything right. And you see that idea spotted all the way throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. But just to give you one example, this is from Zephaniah chapter 3. 
And there, beginning in verse 17, we read, The Lord your God is in your midst. Let's think about Jesus there. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Oh, like this mighty warrior is going to come. Well, it's the invasion of the infant. God goes behind enemy lines as though in disguise, C.S. Lewis would say, right? Comes into the darkness of a womb, the light of the world, right? The word of God now mute inside this womb, right? This war, that's the warrior who comes, right? Remember earlier in Mary's poem, she refers to God as he who is mighty. And then skipping down to verse 19, of Zephaniah 3. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will sa save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And so what Mary was recognizing in this poem by referring to this end-time reversal is saying, look, this end-time reversal that the prophets talked about, that is beginning to happen now. Now look at the verbs of the second stanza of Mary's poem. He has shown. He has scattered. He has brought down. He has exalted. He has filled. He has sent away. He has helped. Who's the subject of all the verbs? God. God. God is the because he's the one who brings the reversal about. He's the one who fights our battles for us. Guess what that means for us? We don't have to. Yeah. What's that? And we, and we win. But, but we win in this way that you might not expect. Right? We don't win through Congress. We don't win through war. We don't win through all these other ways that people try to win in the world. Like this is a different kind of kingdom. Right? And the warrior God is coming to deliver us from our oppressors. Right? In a baby. In a baby. Sin, death, and the devil are going to be crushed by this baby. The end time reversal has begun in this baby. Now, look at the verbs again. Are they in the present tense, past tense, or future tense? Pretty weird, huh? Past tense. What's that about? Mary is, is kind of joining in a long tradition of the prophets where they talk about future things in the past tense. It's like the weirdest thing in the world. Like, and part of it, I think, is because God is outside of time. So it's all one story to him. We can talk about it in any tense we want to talk about it because it's just, I'm outside of it. But I think there's something else going on too. The prophets would talk about future things in the past tense to give you the idea, like, look, guys, this is as good as done, right? And so Mary is saying, this, this pregnancy in my womb is the beginning of the end of time. The end time reversal has begun with me, a poor young teenage girl from this podunk town with a bad reputation. This is how this works. The end time reversal has begun and it will be complete. It is good as done. Let's talk about it in the past tense. Right? Christmas was coming through Mary. To who? 
Who are the beneficiaries of Christmas coming? Poor. The humble. The hungry. That represents all those who can't make life work on their own. The incompetent ones. Is anybody offended by that? <laughs> the beneficiaries are the incompetent ones who, it's better to say it like this. This makes me feel a little bit better. Those who recognize their incompetence. You think you know how the world works? You don't know how the, we don't know how the world works. We see a tiny, 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 tiny sliver of reality. And we think what's, we know what's going on. We don't know what's going on. Right, and so Christmas comes for the poor, the hungry, the needy. And it's those people who are Abraham's offspring, which includes, yeah, it includes the remnant of ethnic Israel. Okay, right? But it's way beyond that, right? God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He said, through you, in your seed, in your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then what Paul does is he takes that in Galatians chapter 3, and he says, all right, check it out. The offspring of Abraham primarily refers to Jesus. And then it refers to everyone who is united to Jesus by faith. And what you see, even in the prophets, right, is that the poor, the hungry, the needy, they are the people of God. So it's not a, it never was about ethnicity. Right? God did have a chosen people. The Christ came through the Jews. But it was always bigger than that. It included the nations. But not everyone in the nations, the needy. Those who said, they came to God and said, I, I cannot make my life work. I'm not deserving of, of this life. Come and save me. And God says, yes, yes, I will. Right? And so those of you who belong to Jesus, you are the offspring of Abraham. And what that means for you is just like Jesus, as he was exalted, after he humbled himself at Christmas, after he humbled himself again on Good Friday, everyone who saw their need for Christmas and Good Friday after that would then be exalted right, in Jesus. And when you begin to realize how undeserved you are, and how privileged you are in Jesus, an adopted son who receives every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.3 tells us. Then what can you say? What could you say other than what Mary has said? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And future generations are going to say, and that person 
is blessed. Not hashtag blessed because you're rich and famous. None of that, right? Man, that God can, God can transform a person like that? He can use a person like that to bring about his plan? That person rejoices in those circumstances? The angels in all the universe are like, oh, whoa! Like this is a big and beautiful God. And that's how God is magnified. And my prayer is that our lives here in Turlock, God using each one of you in this room, right, that your lives would be for other people what that concert in 2009 would be for me. Right, just a window. That's all we want to be. It's just a window. People don't stare at a window and go like, man, this is just a, look at the glass. <laughs> they don't do that. They look through the window to see the bigness and the beauty of God and his Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we're, we're too familiar with this story. You need, to, you need to break through somehow. By your spirit, God, speak to our hearts. Help us to see afresh just the magnitude of what you've done by sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, the exact imprint of your nature, the radiance of your glory, Father, became a baby had his diapers changed, cried when he needed food, the maker of food. Help us to feel it and experience God and help us to be changed by it. Use us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.